Um, all right, so we're going we're gonna to continue our sermon series on David and Goliath today, and we're calling this sermon series My Money's on David because, well, spoiler, spoiler alert, David actually wins the battle between David and Goliath, and this is a common um, story. Really, most people um, in North America know the story of David and Goliath, but we're really looking at it a little bit differently and a little bit deeper than we normally do, and we're looking at how, uh, how, how we, how you and I can defeat the giants in our lives, how you and I can defeat... Um, um, the big things that come up against us and we feel like underdogs, we feel like, uh, like, like it's not probable that we should win this victory, um, I want you to know uh, some ways of how you can defeat these things in your life. And so um, always, whenever we're preaching, we're always um, including brand new people. And so you might not even be a Christian today. You might not even know what you think about Christianity. And this sermon still applies to you. It, um, if anything, it'll, it'll show you that if you did choose to become a Christian, if you did choose to follow Jesus, these are some, some tools that Jesus would give into your life and empower you to defeat some things that you are facing. Because I know, and it's not because I'm psychic, but it's just because I'm really, really super smart. I know everybody here is either dealing with a giant, like right now, or they have dealt with a giant, or they're about to deal with a giant. There's major things in your life that we all face. And so I think we ought to talk about how God enables us, how God empowers us to, to overcome those things. And, and last week we talked about um, my money's on David because he was anointed. Um, it's so important to have the anointing. That's a church word. It's a big word. But it means the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. That means God coming inside of you, empowering you, enabling you to do what you otherwise could not do. He gives you strength. He strengthens your, your resolve. He gives you vision. He gives you ways to see uh, 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 the, 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 the answer, the, the solution to your problem, the Holy Spirit. And so um, I'd love for you to hear that message, uh, but unfortunately it did not get recorded last week. So it's not going to be on podcast. So you missed it. Um, and now you're in big trouble. So anyway, um, now uh, I, I'm going to do a quick refresher course from last week about uh, really about the need for anointing, but also about how things are not always as they seem. You look at um, David, and he is not as he seems. Uh, Samuel, the guy who anointed, who ended up anointing David, was not planning on anointing David because he didn't look the part. And God said, don't, don't look at things like man looks at things. Rather, I look at the heart. I look at the center. I look at the middle. I look at the deepest part of you, and the heart actually is the thing that pumps blood to everything else. So God looks at that thing, which is, which is the deepest part of you that touches every other aspect of your life. That's what God looks at. Things aren't always as they seem. David didn't look like a king. He was only about 10 years old when he was anointed by Samuel. He didn't look very kingly. And most of us don't really look like what God has called us to be. Um, I, a lot of people tell me I don't look like a pastor, so <laughs> for what it's worth. They're like, oh, are you in the band? They're like, are you in the band? Are you in the college ministry? Youth ministry? No, no, kind of. But, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but you may not look like what God's called you to be, but it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. What matters is what God sees on the inside. That's the single most important thing. And oftentimes the anointing happens on the inside. It happens in the dark where people don't see it. But God calls it out of you. And so, and so the, the main statement 
segment that we had everybody repeat, and I don't normally have people turn to their neighbors and stuff and do that, but, but last week I did it, although I didn't say neighbor, but my wife was like, you had people turn and say stuff to people. What is that? And I said, well, this week I'm going to say turn to your neighbor because I'm just going old school. We're talking neighbor, like not the folks that live on your street, the folks sitting next to you in church. That's a neighbor. Uh, and then Allstate, of course, or farmers. I don't know. Some insurance company is also your neighbor. Um, but... But last week, we had everybody turn to their neighbor and say this statement. We said, I am anointed to accomplish my assignment. And it's important that you say that yourself, that you believe that yourself. Because you are. You are anointed. You're anointed to do what God's called you to do, regardless of what you look like. So I could preach the whole sermon all over again. But we're moving forward today to the second reason why my money's on David. And so to start off, we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 17. The scripture is going to be on the big screen, verse 31. Um, it says, Now when the words which David spoke were, were heard... They reported them to Saul. Now, there's a little backstory. David was anointed uh, around age 10 to 13. And um, then at around age 15 to 17, he is visiting his brothers, and they are in battle. And there's this, this guy called Goliath. He's a big dude. He's challenging everybody, and nobody wants to face Goliath. Goliath is challenging them to a hand-to-hand -hand duel, a one-on-one -on -one battle down in this field. And, uh, and, and the winner of this battle would really determine the winner of the entire battle. And all of Israel has been uh, put on hold. The entire Israeli army has been stopped for the past 40 days because nobody wants to challenge Goliath. That's a pretty powerful dude that he would, he would, he would put them on hold for 40 days. I mean, like we gave up some of our best men in Texas just to put the, Mex the Mexico army on hold for a little, a little while in, in uh, that little place down in San Antonio, but uh, the Alamo. But, you know, this guy is putting this entire army on hold for 40 days. Nobody wants to challenge Goliath. And David hears it, and David says, hey, I'll take him on. And so when those words which David spoke were reported to Saul, Saul sent for him. And then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. In other words, don't sweat it. Your servant will go fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. This, uh, this Goliath, he was always the, the captain of the football team. He, he was on everybody growing up. He was 10 years old, and he was 6 feet tall. You know, he, was, he, was, he, was the, he was the star basketball player. And, and when, when they went out to war, he, he quickly demonstrated how powerful he was and how tall he was, how strong he was. Scripture says he was over 9 feet tall. He's a big boy. He's, his, 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 his armor itself weighed 125 pounds. Uh, his, his, his spear, the end of his spear, weighed about 15 pounds. So that has some serious throwing power there. He's a, he's a beast. He's a, he's a giant. And Saul says, look, uh, little guy, you know, I appreciate your heart. I love the spirit, the spunk, but um, you're not going to be able to cut it. Verse 34, David has a little argument. He says, well, actually, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion, that's cute, he used to keep his father's sheep. <laughs> hey, buddy, I'm a shepherd. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. When it arose against me, I grabbed it by its beard, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine... Uh, will be like one of them, seeing as how he's defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37 says, Moreover, the Lord who delivered me. Okay, so, so here's, here's my abilities. Here's what I've done. But on top of that, 
the God who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Interesting, this argument changed Saul's mind. This really moved Saul. And so Saul has this brilliant idea. He clothes David with his own armor. He puts a bronze helmet on his head and clothes him with a coat of mail. That's, that's one of those heavy armor uh, uh, pieces that, that Goliath was also wearing. It was his own, it's Saul's own stuff. He puts it on him and he clothes him. David fastened his sword to his armor and then he tried to walk. <laughs> and David said to Saul, I can't even walk in these uh, for I haven't tested them. So David took them off. You don't want to walk in something you haven't tested. I'll just let that, that that's, that's for free. That's just, that's not my sermon notes. That's just, and he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag and a pouch, which he had and his sling in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine. We know the rest of the story that, that, that David goes out against the Philistine. The Philistine is at first insulted. Goliath is insulted. He says, am I a, am I a dog? Do you come to me with a stick? because he has a staff. He actually said sticks, plural. We're going to get into that next week as to why he would say plural when it's only one stick. Um, but he says, at first he's insulted. Are you going to come try to beat me with a stick, you know? Um, he's at first insulted and then, and then, and then angered and then dead. <laughs> and that's basically the way the storyline goes. And for many of us, when we look at the story, we, we see David, who is this incredible underdog, and we see Goliath, who is such a favorite and then we see David just has this faith, right? And the way I've always heard it preached is like David, he goes out there with his sling, you know, and he's, he's got all this faith in God and God's going to do it. And he runs out the, and he like closes, squints his eyes and just chucks the rock, you know. And I've actually heard preachers say that, that God guided the rock and it hit Saul or uh, hit Goliath and the only weakness that he had was just his forehead, you know. And the story that comes out of that or the lesson that we learn out of that is all you have to do is believe that God can do something crazy, and then you just have to, like, try, like, throw something, and then God's just going to make it happen. And, and the problem with that is that that is a very elementary level of faith. That's a very low level of faith. It's a very small level of faith. And I think it's a very inaccurate view of this story. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, David and Goliath, he talks about three different kind of ancient warriors. And I'm going to jack up your theology today, so it's going to be fun. Um, he talks about three different kinds of warriors, and he, and, he, and he lists them. That In the ancient world, there are three basic kinds of warriors. Number one, and I have a, a cool little slide here, of Goliath. This is actually a flannel graph Goliath right there. All the 80s children, come on. I just felt the spirit right there. I just the anointing. It's something about flannel on flannel with uh, guys in Bible stories. It's just perfect. You can stick them upside down, do all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, that's Goliath, and he is a hand-to-hand combat kind of fighter. So he, he, would be, he would be clothed in a lot of heavy armor because he's going to be hand-to-hand combat. He's going to be within arm's reach. He's kind of like a front lineman in football, right? They're big, they're slow, they're powerful, but, dude, if they get their hand on you, you're going down. Uh, he's a front lineman. He's a, he's a hand-to-hand combat. All of his weaponry is for people that are within close range. So he has a heavy shield. He has a heavy sword. He has a heavy spear. He's going to start throwing his weight around. He's going to step into the middle of a battle. He's going to start taking people out. All right? He's hand-to-hand combat. Well, the other kind of warrior that they had in the ancient world was more like the Air Force. And these guys um, are the, the, 
cavalry. And that's a, that's a, that's a rendition of the actual Assyrian army and their cavalry. So, so, so they didn't carry much armor. They had some armor. Uh, they didn't carry much tools. They basically had a spear, and they would, they would rush in on, on a horse into the fray. And they would sort of swoop in almost like the Air Force, kind of swoop in, drop some bombs, and then keep going. They're not going to stand in the middle of a fight. They're going to they're gonna come in. They're going to cut some people up, and then they're going to go back out. And then they're going to keep making these rounds while the hand-to-hand, hand-to-hand combat guy are fighting, the, 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 the Air Force is going to come in kind of uh, and help bring some support. Well, the final type of, of warrior, the final type of fighter is what David was. And this is, a, I guess, a, a cheesy picture of David um, with a very trimmed beard, uh, was a slinger. And slingers were uh, the same as archers in those days. They were basically the ancient snipers. Slingers and archers did not go into battle. They didn't go toe-to-toe with people. Obviously, they didn't wear any kind of armor. They, 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 they carried a bag that had stones in them, about the size of my fist, and, and, and they became very proficient at slinging. Now, how proficient? Actually, in the book of Numbers, it talks about slingers, that the slingers in God's army were able to hit their target within a hair's breadth. Uh, think how broad a hair is. <laughs> That's how close they got to their target. Um, ancient, ancient Irish slingers were able to hit a bird from as far as 200 yards away. That's two football fields stacked end to end. You can barely see a bird from there. And they would start slinging, and the revolutions, literally, it would be about six to seven revolutions per second over their head. They got so good at it, and then they would release. Basically, it was, a, it was, a, it was, it was basically a bit, a bit of rope or, or, or leather, and there were two ends to it, and they would put the rock down at the end, sling it, and they would release one end, and they could, they could hit their target from 200 yards away. The velocity... Uh, It's it's estimated that the velocity with which David's rock would have uh, projected out of his sling would have been similar to a modern-day medium-sized handgun. Now, you think about this for just a second. This is like paper, rock, scissors. Anybody play paper, rock, scissors? Uh, Ro and I play it all the time, so he was going to get the kids water before bed. (laughs) Because you always forget the water. And they don't really drink water, but they're laying in bed. Mom, Dad! I need water. <laughs> so I finally told Micah, I'm like, dude, until you learn not to wet the bed, there's no water. No water. You got to go three nights, dry, dry bed. So anyway, um, but Ro and I will do paper, rock, scissors. I'm so good at like reading her mind. I look into her eyes and I just, I know exactly what she's going to do. And uh, then she changes it up. That's what she's been doing. She's like, I think one thing and then I do something else. And <laughs> So I just still, women, it's hard to, hard to figure them out. Um, but paper, rock, scissors, right? If you have scissors, rock is going to beat scissors every time. It just is. If you have paper, paper going to beat rock every time. Well, this is kind of like the ancient warfare. If you were to pit uh, a hand-to-hand combat guy who's slow, who's powerful, who's heavily armored, heavily weighed down against a sniper, the sniper is going to win every time. I mean, when you look at the battle, basically you had this ancient warrior against a guy with a semi-automatic pistol. Who's going to win? David's going to win. We've, I, I think we've often seen this story and told this story from a, a wrong perspective. We see it the way that Saul saw it. Saul's like, well, he's been a warrior since his youth, and you're only just a little kid. 
But what he didn't understand is that David, and this is what David explains. He says, dude, I've been taking out lions and bears with this here sling, right? I've been taking them out, and then I grab them by the beard, and I chop their heads off. I mean, this is kind of how I roll. And when he explained to Saul that he wasn't exactly going to enter the battle the same way that Goliath expected him to, Saul said, maybe this kid's on to something. And this is what underdogs do. This is what makes underdogs not really underdogs. This is what gives underdogs the upper hand, is that underdogs have the privilege of approaching a battle and not necessarily fighting in the same way that the enemy wants to fight. Goliath is expecting a hand-to-hand combat, and Goliath clearly is the favored victor in any kind of battle like that. But when David steps up, he sees a stick in his hand, and he thinks, this, first they send a kid, then they send a kid with a stick? What in the world? I'm going to kill this guy. And then he sees the sling in his hand, and what could only have been horror. <laughs> and literally five seconds later, there's a bullet fired toward his head, and he is, Jesus is calling us. <laughs> and it's a wake-up call for Goliath. And he realizes that the tables have turned. He realizes that the battle is not what he thought that it was. That the odds are not what he thought that they were. And that he's never even going to be able to reach David. Because David's 200 yards away and he's already shooting rocks. It's 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 like a major league baseball pitcher throwing a ball at your head. Only it's not a rubber cork, you know, with leather. It's it's a rock. And suddenly, David becomes the favorite in a battle that looks like he shouldn't have won. And so when you tell that story, you really mess up people's theology because for years we've heard that David just kind of had no chance in the world and he just kind of chucked it and God did everything. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about faith, but not necessarily the kind of faith that expects God to do everything. (laughs) But the kind of faith that is... Another word that we don't like when you add full to it. <laughs> faithful. We find my money's on David because David was faithful. Yes, he believed God. Yes, he said, God will deliver me. And that is part of his claim. He says, look, God is with me. And we know that God was with him. But, but on top of that, when he looked at that giant, he said, I'm going to strike you down. He wasn't just hoping. He wasn't just dreaming. He had hit targets much smaller than that. And he says, yep, about 100 yards, that'd be easy. I'm going to strike you down. I've been practicing for the past seven years on the backside of the desert. So I want to talk to you about being faithful. Because it's good to have faith. It's good to believe God's going to do stuff. And God does do stuff. But he does stuff alongside our faithfulness. And it's dangerous to step into a fight or to wear something you haven't tested. It's dangerous to step into a fight and just believe God's going to take care of it all. Because it doesn't always work that way. And people get hurt. People get burned out. People, uh, churches get foreclosed on because they go so deep into debt believing God's going to work it all out. Somebody's just got to be faithful and be wise and be ready and be prepared. Come on, somebody. Well, anyway... (laughs) 
I'm talking about faithfulness, and David was faithful. When we, when, we read, when we read last week where David was anointed, after he's anointed, he's sent not to the palace. He's sent back out to the wilderness, and he's there for roughly between four and seven years. Now, this is painful when you know that you're anointed to be king, but you're still doing the job of a shepherd. And so my first point within the faithfulness factor is that, that, that what you need to understand is that just because you're anointed does not mean that your job description is necessarily going to change. Just because you're anointed to be king does not mean you're necessarily immediately going to be king. That there is, there is a time in which God graciously, I might add, prepares you for the fight. And the field that David was in was his preparation for the fight that he was about to be in. So God anoints him, and then God sends him on a preparation journey. He sends him back out to the field where he was watching the few sheep that he had, doing a, a minuscule job, an unimportant job, a job that seemed unrelated to what he was anointed to do. And it's painful when you're in life and you know that God's called you to do something, and what you're doing right now doesn't seem like you can connect the dots between where you are and where you feel like God wants you to be. It's always a painful time, and I talk about my time in Tennessee because I was I was called to pastor and preach, and instead I was looking after horses and shoveling manure, and having, um, fun. And having so much fun with my lovely wife. We it was just you and me in a shack, and I did enjoy that. It was just no kids, no responsibilities. That was nice, babe. But the manure I could have done without. Um, you know, it's just everywhere, and uh, I've told that story several times, so I'm not going to bother you with it, but, but there's always a time of preparation in which your, 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 David's job is not to sit there and just simply wait. Well, I'm going to wash these sheep and wait. No, no, no. God expects him to be faithful. God expects him to be faithful where he's at because, because faithfulness is what, is what prepares you for the fight. When you are in the field, the field will prepare you for the fight because it'll let you know what your strengths are. In the field, David learned that he was not a hand-to-hand -hand combat dude, that he was a slinger. In the field, David learned that, and, and in the field, he practiced that for hours and weeks and days and months on end. He's practicing working on his shot. Uh, I talk to so many people who say that they're called, but they're not working on their shot. And it's like, well, what are you doing? You know, you have to get good at what you have. And so what he had was a sling and some, obviously, lots of stones in the Israeli desert. And so he got good with what he had. He used what was in his hand. He used what he had. Um, there's, a, there's, there's, there's actually a, a survey done uh, a few years back where, um, where a man took all of the wars... Uh, his name was Erguin Toft. Uh, Ivan Erguin Toft took all of the wars over the past 200 years that occurred between very small and very large countries. Um, basically, a country that was 10 times the size of another country. And he looked at those those battles, and uh, I think there was around 200, around 200 of those type of battles, where one country attacks another country, and one of those countries is literally 10 times the size of the other. And he looked at, okay, what are the statistics? How often does the bigger country win? And he found that it was 71.5% of the time, which that's kind of interesting in and of itself. I would have put it more like 100 or 99%. But actually, the bigger country only wins 71.5% of the time. 
And so we began looking into this a little bit deeper. How? I mean, because this is similar to, like, the U.S. attacking Canada, right? Like, uh, I would naturally think that we would, we would win because... You know, they got Mounties, and that's, that's mostly what they have, you know? And we got, like, all this... We get to, we're about 10 times the size of their country. Our military is about 10 times the might. I mean, we could, we could take them on. Not saying we should. I'm just, just, just saying. Uh, I grew up right next to Canada, so, you know, it's, uh, my sister was born in Canada, so we kind of have some rivalry there with uh, Canada, even though all of our hockey players are from over there, but up in Detroit. But anyway, um, we, we, we found that, 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 that only 71% of the time did the bigger country win. So we began looking at it a little bit differently, and he asked another question. He says, well, what happens in wars between strong and weak when the weak side does as David did and refuses to fight uh, the way that the bigger side wants to? using unconventional or guerrilla tactics. And the answer in those cases is that the weaker party's winning percentage climbed from a mere 28.5% to 63.6%. In scenarios where a country that is 10 times smaller than another country, if they fight in an unconventional way, they are act- you'd, you'd be better off putting your money on Canada. <laughs> They're 60 like what, 63%, uh, 63% of the time, they win. And so one would ask, well, well, what, what are some examples? Well, one is Lawrence of Arabia. You've probably heard of him. L.T. Lawrence in 1917 uh, led a group of Arabians against the Turks uh, along with some of the British army. And, and actually, uh, one, of the, one of the British commanders called Lawrence's team uh, an untrained rabble, most of whom never held a, a rifle before. And Lawrence himself said of his team, he said, he said, our cards, what we were dealt, were speed and time, not hitting power. Our largest available resources uh, were the tribesmen, men quite unused to formal warfare, whose assets were movement, endurance, individual intelligence, knowledge of the country, and courage. That's what he had to work with. And really, Lawrence's masterstroke was an assault on the port town of Aquaba. The Turks expected an attack from the British troops patrolling the waters of the, go- of the Gulf of Aquaba to the west. Lawrence decided to attack from the east instead. But in order to do that, he literally had to come at the city from the unprotected desert, which he was already at the port, which means he had to do a loop. He had to travel with his band of men 600 miles through the, the Middle Eastern desert in the middle of the summer. And, 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 and he wrote later in his journal that, that that year the valley seemed creeping with horned vipers and puff adders, cobras, cobras and black snakes. So it was, was, was kind of like a vacation, really, Disney cruise. But his men could travel 110 miles a day through the desert. That's amazing. They had speed on their side. When they finally arrived at Aqaba, Lawrence's band of several hundred warriors uh, killed or captured 1,200 Turks and lost only two guys. The Turks simply had not thought that their opponent would be crazy enough to come at them from the desert. And that's the power of the underdog, that when we face giants, we don't have to face giants the way that giants want us to face them. When we face church planting, we don't have to plant churches the way that, that, that other, we don't have to operate the way that, that, that bigger, more established churches operate. We're, as I said last week, we're a little more scrappy. Um, <laughs> and a little, I think, uh, our strengths, our speed and courage and the, the willingness to get dirty and to sweat 
and to meet in the theater. Uh, we've had several folks actually just join the church and, and lives are being changed because they came at a time, like, just because they came to a movie. Uh, uh, David and Marianne first found out about us because they came to a movie. And David actually thought it was an, it was an awesome theater because they were offering free coffee and donuts. <laughs> and he came and got coffee and donuts and went to his movie. And like uh, one of our folks back there were like, oh, the service is in here. And he's like, oh, no, I'm going to the movie. <laughs> And he sat down, and Marianne's like, where'd you get the coffee and donuts? And, uh, and then a little bit later on, Janie invited Marianne, and, oh, that's the church that's giving away free coffee and donuts. <laughs> but it's kind of unconventional, you know, meeting in the theater. It's kind of unconventional. But, but, but that's, that's some of our strengths. We're not, we're not, we don't, we're, I mean, the, basically our committee meetings are very short. <laughs> we have a few people that we meet with, and we go for it. And, and you guys just do crazy stuff. I'm like, hey, let's, let's, do, let's just do an outreach in, in, a, in, a, in a kid's club in a neighborhood, and let's sweat for three days and tell kids about the gospel and invite them to come out. You guys are like, woo, yeah, let's do it. You know, I mean, it's kind of like Lawrence of Arabia's guys. But that's what it means to be faithful. It doesn't just mean to wait. It means to work on what you're good at and to use what you've got to defeat what's in front of you. Uh, I talk to other church planners all the time, and I, I'm connected to a lot of other church planners. We try to encourage each other. And one guy was telling me, man, I just need, just need 30 more people. And I said, uh, no, actually, you don't. Like, you have everything you need. You're, the 30 people that you have, like, they're powerful enough to move mountains. Because the enemy doesn't expect them. Because <laughs> he's not looking out. He's looking out for some of the bigger churches. He's got all, the, all these abilities. God, the enemy's not looking out for a church of 30 people meeting in a little school. But, you know, like, like surprise attack is what it is. We'll sneak into their neighborhoods and we'll, we'll interject ourselves into, in, into the culture and into society and into a, into a movie theater or, or right there, right in the middle of a mall where people are. And we'll just start witnessing because, because we're kind of scrappy. We're kind of little and it really doesn't matter. We're just going for it. And, and the giant of, of this culture and of this age doesn't quite know what to do with that kind of David who uses what he has, yes. who just picks it up and just goes for it, yes. sharpens his skills. Not only does he learn faithfulness in the field, he learns fearlessness. He learns fearlessness uh, because it's kind of funny to me that, that basically he decides he's called, he's anointed, and then boom, all of a sudden his, his little flock is being attacked. And isn't that the way? As soon as you decide to get close to God, suddenly whatever job you're at, whatever life you're living, it's like lions and bears become interested in what you're doing. Your, your, your life often gets harder when you get closer to God, when you realize you're anointed. And that's for two reasons. Number one, the enemy knows that if he can discourage you in the field, you'll never make it to the fight. And so, so often, the very thing you're battling right now is not even about like the fight you're in right now is not about the flock that you're in. <laughs> it's, about the, it's about the fight that you're going to. And the enemy sees greatness in you. And so he's not after your little flock. He's not after David's little sheep and all. He doesn't care about that. He wants to demoralize and to steal David's uh, ambition and his courage. And if he can steal his courage in the field, he'll never have the courage to step into the fight. 
And so he comes at him right there where he's at and, and sends bears and lions. And I mean, David wasn't Superman. He would have been afraid of these things. But when you face what you fear, that's how you become fearless. And so there's two things. Number one, Satan wants to demoralize you. But number two, God wants to prepare you. And so God will allow you to go through the school of fear in order to learn to be fearless. He will allow you to face what you fear. Just like Job, what he feared came upon him. God allowed that in order to teach us to become fearless. You're not born fearless. You become fearless when you face your fears. When what you feared the most, when what you thought you needed in order to survive, when that goes away and all you have to rely on is what's in your hand and a God that's over your, your head, then you understand what it is to be fearless. And it was in the field, by the way, that David wrote Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He's talking about shepherds and sheep. In other words, when you find Jesus in your field, you start to get more fearless. He's looking around. He's like, well, this is, this is kind of like what God does for me. I'm feeding these sheep. God feeds me. I'm taking care of every single need of these sheep. God has given me every single thing that I need. And so if I'm going to have you guys repeat something and turn to your neighbor, which I am because I told you I would, uh, I want you to repeat this, okay? All right? Just, just say this. Say, I have everything that I need to accomplish my purpose. No, seriously, like, like, like let's, just, let's, just, let's just say it again so it sinks in a little bit. I have right now, right this very moment, I have everything that I need to accomplish my purpose. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. In other words, you have everything you need to defeat what is standing in your way. It's not coming down the road. There's not a boat that's coming in to bring you what you need. There's not a doctor. There's not a report. There's nothing that you need that you don't already have because if you needed it, God would have already given it to you. He's already given you everything you need to accomplish your purpose. And so just look in your hand. And, and, you might, and David's out there slinging things. He's picking off birds, you know. He's taking down lions and bears. And he's thinking, boy, this has nothing to do with being king. This has nothing to do with being king at all, actually. I don't, I don't see how this is going to help any, anything. And yet, all the while, God sees this, this giant rising up through the ranks. And he knows that there's going to come a time in which a giant is going to meet, is going to meet his people. And God is preparing a slinger because a, nothing can take out a giant like a slinger. And so God is, God is preparing. The bat. It's a set up. It's a set up. Before David even walks into the ring, he's already the winner. He's already more than a conqueror through him who loved him and who set him up for victory. You're being set up. And the enemy's being set up. Yeah. Get a little, you, you, hey, if you want to turn to your neighbor, you can tell him he does shout from time to time. He gets a little excited and then. Then he cracks jokes again, so it's all going to be all right. It's going to be all good. He always... But here on Father's Day, I, I want to tell all the dads in this place, you also have a sling. I think as dads, we often feel like we don't have what it takes to be the kind of dad we want to be, whether we are short on cash or maybe we're short on time because we're trying to get cash <laughs> or maybe we're short on all the above. Or, or, or maybe we're short on wisdom. Maybe we don't feel like we have the words to say to guide children because 
we're facing a, a, an age in which there are a lot of voices going into our kids' brains, <laughs> a lot of influences. And I want to tell you that God has set you up to defeat every giant in your child's life, every giant that he's going to face. God has set you up to empower them. The, uh, I, I heard it said one time that the Hebrew version of parent or father especially means one who gives significance. So as dads, I just want to encourage you that you are the, you are, we are the ones that give significance to our children, not the ones who give wisdom or money. <laughs> Those things are cool if you can afford it, if you got it. But sometimes I'm real short on wisdom and I'm pretty much always short on money. And I have time short on time. <laughs> but you can give significance. One quick, one quick example in my own life with my own dad. Um, growing up, my dad didn't have much time or money because he was trying to make enough money to pay the bills. Um, so he would go to work early. He worked in Detroit. We lived 45 minutes outside of Detroit. That's why you don't mess with me because I can drop bows on you. We're talking... <laughs> somebody sneak up on me the other day at Sam's call. I'm like, you're lucky. You're lucky just that I, you know, was saved because I was just like, what? Huh? No, just kidding. I'm really not. I'm very, very, very docile. Um, but my dad had to leave the house at like 5 a.m. and he got home around 6, 37. And we're going to bed, you know, we're going to bed around 9. I mean, you, you know how the family works. There's not a lot of time. Not a lot of time there. And so dad would graciously wake us up at 4 a.m., <laughs> to do a little Bible study with us and read through Proverbs and read through one chapter of Psalms, a small psalm. <laughs> and uh, what does that do? That lends significance to me. My dad cares enough to get up an hour earlier than he even would have gotten up to prepare a little Bible lesson. And he's not a preacher or a pastor or anything. He just, he just read, read the Bible. That's it. And said, this is what I think it means, guys. That was it. It's only need significance. And I remember one time, uh, for us, a big thing, a big deal was to go to um, McDonald's on Fridays. Payday's Friday, so woo, we go to McDonald's on Friday and uh, get a Happy Meal. And I'm, I'm very much a planner in my brain. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm, my favorite day as a kid was Christmas Eve, not Christmas Day, because the anticipation. And so um, they used to, I don't know if they still do, they used to have collections of toys in the McDonald's Happy Meals. Do they still have that? Where, like, they have, like, four toys to a collection or something, and you want to collect all four. So I was a big, like, collector of the McDonald's toys. And um, I remember they were doing, like, monster trucks, like these little monster trucks. I was about five years old. And um, they were doing these monster trucks and I was looking forward to Friday because I had three of the monster trucks and the final one, which was always the best, was coming out that week. And so I'm looking forward to Friday. And my, my other friend who lived just down the street, his dad, every Friday on payday, would take him out to like the grocery store and buy him like a legit toy, you know, like a, like a toy from the toy aisle. And uh, I remember saying to mom one time, I was like, why does he get a toy, like a, like a toy, like a gun, you know? And she's like, well, because... Brandon's dad makes more money than your dad, so they can afford to buy more stuff. Okay, that makes sense. Um, you know, I mean, kids are very literal. I was a very literal kid, so it made sense to me. But for me, I was really looking forward to McDonald's 
monster truck. And so we go, uh, uh, dad gets home, we go on out, and we used to go to McDonald's and, and get Happy Meals and go sit under the Blue Water Bridge, which is the bridge that connects Canada and America. And we, we just sit there and eat. Like, that's kind of what we did. Eat the French fries, eat the McDonald's, and watch the little boats um, go by. And so we go through the drive-through. I, I, I get my box, rip it open, and it's a totally different toy. Like, it's not even a monster truck at all. It's like they switched it. And I, 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 and I, even as a five-year-old, I was very logical. And it doesn't make sense, Harry, that you'd be so disappointed about a little monster truck. But I was kind of, I don't know if my bottom lip was quivering or what, but mom noticed, and she's like, what's the matter, Harry J? Because that's what my family calls me, Harry J. Uh, in case you ever hear that. Uh, what's the matter, Harry J? And I'm like, well, he's in the truck. And you know, I kind of explained. And, and I remember dad pulled over the side of the road, and, and he turned around and he said, well, what did the other truck look like? I said, well, it was blue. Because I used to have posters on the wall. And so I was like, well, it was blue. And it, like, I just described it. And so dad turned around and went back to McDonald's and went in there. He was in there for like five minutes. I remember where we parked. So I remember I could see him like coming out of the door. So he came out of the door and he didn't have anything in his hand. I was like, oh. He's like, well, they discontinued it you know, this week because McDonald's is basically the Antichrist. And they do things like that to poor children. Had a slight bitterness ever since. Dad didn't say that. I threw that in. Um, he said, well, they're all out. They switched in the middle of the week, and they're all out of the trucks. And so I said, okay, okay. And so then Dad's like, but there is another McDonald's on the other side of town. So I remember we drove all the way to the other side of town. He went into that McDonald's, and he still came out empty-handed. Um, and... And I, I remember that story. I was so young, and I always think, why do I remember that story? I think because it made a real impression to me. Not that Dad fixed it, because he, he didn't. <laughs> uh, but because he tried. And so sometimes it's not what you come out of the store with. It's the fact that you went in. You know? That lends significance. Not material values. I didn't get a cool truck. But I had a dad who tried. I had a dad who was going to try, who cared about what I cared about. And I, I know you can't always get trucks for kids and all that kind of thing. And disappointment comes in life. But, but whenever we spend time with our kids, whenever we, whenever we try, <laughs> I think it really spends, gives significance to them. So I want to honor every dad who tries. I want to honor every dad who goes into McDonald's, whether they come out with what they're supposed to come out with or not. <laughs> Every dad who sticks around, every dad who tries. I want to honor every stepdad who tries, even when it's not your own kid. You adopt them. I want to honor every adoptive parent. T-Bear's got, got a boatload over there of adopted kids and Dennis and Casey. And we, got, we got a few of those. I want to honor you today for trying. Trying for somebody else's kid, actually. Um, I, want to, I want to honor every guy here who's just a mentor your spiritual dad. Um, there, there are times when I sit with Micah. He's my little one. He's four. And uh, he has a bad attitude occasionally. Four-year-olds do that. And we're trying to work on that. And so whenever Roe is just like had it up to here, she's like, all right, you're going to go talk to your dad. And so Micah and I sit down and talk, and we, we um, chat for like five minutes, and then he's just, he's better the whole day. And um, Roe thinks I'm, that's because I'm brilliant. And that's part of it. <laughs> no. Rose's sister was in town, and she's like, she was dealing with some things with her kids. She's like, Harry, what do you do? What do you say? What happens? 
And I said, well, I just try to, I try to figure out why. So I talked to his heart. I try to, I'm a student of my son's heart. I want to know what's going on that's causing him to do and to say and to act. Like, but beyond all that, what's going on in here? And honestly, half the time, I'm fumbling around like an idiot. I, like, I'm not, like, it's nothing I would share from the pulpit because it's not inspiring. <laughs> but I think there's something about who I am, not necessarily what I say, but who I am, that tells my son that he's important when I stop what I'm doing to say, I want to I wanna know you. I want to I wanna know you. So I want to honor every dad who gets to know their kids, regardless of what kind of income you have or what kind of time you feel that you have. You're making a difference. You're bringing significance. And our kids are going to know who they are and that they're loved. And it's going to be so much easier for them to meet God, a father who loves them. When they say, ah, oh, this is kind of familiar. <laughs> so for everyone here who, who lost a dad this year, we want to honor you and just grieve with you. For everyone that had a dad that was not a good example, we honor you for trying to do something better and different. And we pray that God repairs those relationships and restores those relationships, even as adults. So we honor our dads today.